it's hit home for all of us that even have kids, you want to go home and give them a kiss every day. Every day, because you never know when your last day will be. An entire industry rattled by the Kelowna crane disaster. What we know about the workers who died. Uncovering the truth on Cooper Island. There's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to hide. More unmarked graves as residential school survivors recount their time in a place that felt like prison. And changes coming to BC Emergency Health Services. When people need an ambulance and call 911, an ambulance should get there. What the health minister says about the crisis crippling our ambulance service. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. One day after the deadly collapse of a construction crane in downtown Kelowna, we're starting to learn more about the victims. Four people are confirmed dead and Kelowna RCMP say another person is still unaccounted for and presumed dead. Our Nithu Garcha is live. Status search right now. Well, Sophie, structural engineers are on scene here using another crane to assess the one that had that deadly collapse on Monday. They're now working to stabilize that crane, which remains unstable uh, and threatening many of the buildings in this neighborhood as they try to recover the body of one of the victims who's believed to be buried in the rubble of one of the neighbor neighboring buildings. It's an incredible escape. A worker at this under-construction condo tower climbing down an unstable crane after its boom toppled, killing four of his co-workers. I talked to him when he was on the cross beam. I was on the sixth floor and I just told him to keep going and try to get to the building. First time in my career as a first aid attendant where I couldn't do anything. Shea Cosgrove bringing flowers to the scene and says they're just trying to cope. Those guys that were there, they had children and wives. And they're good, good people. Two of the victims have been identified by family and friends as brothers Eric and Patrick Stemmer, who worked for Stemmer Construction based in Salmon Arm. The city's mayor says the community is in shock. Our hearts go out to the family. It's unfathomable, really, and just devastating. On Patrick Stemmer's Instagram account, what appears to be video recorded from the crane was uploaded hours before the collapse. Another victim, also identified in a verified GoFundMe page, is Jared Zook. It's hit home for all of us that even have kids. You want to go home and give them a kiss every day, every day, because you never know when your last day will be. The crash happened around 11 Monday morning at Bernard Avenue and St. Paul Street. Witnesses say the impact shook nearby buildings. And the big plume of smoke came up and it was just, you know, this massive plume. Mission Group, the developer of the tower called Brooklyn Building, said it happened while the crane was being dismantled. Obviously something catastrophic occurred. That's the responsibility of the work, Workplace BC in conjunction with the RCMP. The mangled crane that continues to threaten nearby structures serves as a reminder of the tragedy that prevented those beloved men who went to work on Monday from ever coming home. All right, Nithu, uh, Canada's heavy urban search and rescue team has been deployed to help at the collapse site. What will they be doing? 
That's right, Sophie. The Vancouver-based task force helps rescue victims from major structural collapses and other hazards. And they said they'll be taking an integrated approach involving police officers, firefighters, structural engineers, and trained search dogs who they're bringing to Kelowna. And that really just speaks to the complexity of the work that's being done, again, as they try to stabilize that crane to recover that one body that's unaccounted for and has not been recovered and to bring people who've been evacuated back to their homes and place of work. Sophie? All right, thanks for that. Neetu Garcha reporting in Kelowna for us. Well, the impacts of the crane disaster obviously are widespread. An entire industry has been impacted by it, and a four-block perimeter has been cordoned off while an emergency, state of emergency, is in effect. Global's Jules Knox has more on what's next for evacuees and everyone else impacted by this disaster. Neighbors shocked by the mangled mash of metal crashing down, striking a roof and slamming into the carport. My wife was located uh, in the sunroom when the event happened and she, she actually witnessed uh, two of the deaths as they, as they happened. Nearby resident Gordon Williams was out at the time of the crane crash. He hasn't been able to return home since and says it's tough not knowing when that will change. Other people that, that are, are quite a bit older than I in our building, in their, in their 80s and, and some in their 90s, it, it's going to definitely have an effect on their lives. Emergency support services registering approximately 100 evacuees Monday night, many with little more than the clothes on their backs. We were told that that area was evacuated. We had a get out and couldn't go back. Confusion, like what's happening, when can we go home? And unfortunately, we couldn't answer any of those questions. No one could. ESS Director Catherine Williams says a number of people were eventually allowed back into their homes Monday evening, while about 70 people were placed in hotel rooms. Yellow tape stretches for blocks around the crane collapse. Businesses like the Safeway are closed and shops all along Bernard Avenue to St. Paul Street. Miss Tulip's Green Dry Cleaner, one of the nearby businesses, lucky to reopen after a short power outage after the crash. As far as business goes, we weren't affected that much. Um, we were shut down for about 45 minutes and then we were able to get up and running again, so we were fortunate. But she says it was a scary time. And finding out that people were injured and killed is terrible. A sentiment echoed by many. For the people that have lost loved ones, you know, I think of them and I'm, I, uh, all I can do is, is stand back and pray that they can manage through, through all the trauma. Jules Knox, Global News, Kelowna. A survivor of one of BC's most notorious residential schools is speaking out tonight following the announcement of more undocumented and unmarked graves. Kylie Stanton has the latest on the grim discovery in the Gulf Islands and a warning some of the details might be disturbing for some viewers. There was a school gym and uh, that's where I used to hide. For students here, it became known as Alcatraz, an island prison, the path to escape forever in sight. The watery depths too far across to safely swim. Nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. There was just no way out. From the 1890s to 1970s, the Cooper Island Industrial School operated on what's now known as Penelicate Island. 
Now, the Penelicut tribe confirms the discovery of more than 160 undocumented and unmarked graves on the former school site within their territory. It's uh, something that hits you hard and you go through the, uh, the emotions, uh, but at the same time trying to comprehend how important it is to get these stories out. In a letter informing neighboring First Nations communities, Chief Joan Brown writes, it is impossible to get over the acts of genocide and human rights violations. Healing is an ongoing process, and sometimes it goes well, and sometimes we lose more people because the burden is too great. There's lots of anger and lots of hate, but most of all, it's just like lots of sorrow because I was no longer a kid. The school was officially closed in 1975. Five years later, the building was demolished, leaving behind generations of survivors. The whole abuse stayed deep within my heart, my soul. I, I would not allow it to come out. Global News has reached out to the Penelicut tribe for further information, but officials have not yet returned calls for comment. It's believed ground-penetrating radar, similar to this, was used in this investigation, and there is still more work to be done. What will likely only add to the number of suspected graves reported to be found right across the country, now totaling well over 1,000. We are here for you. The Prime Minister once again offering support. We cannot bring back those who were lost, but we can and we will continue to tell the truth. I was five, I mean... But survivors who are well aware of the truth are calling for action and accountability, knowing what's been revealed so far is just the beginning. It's going to be more bodies as we go along, month from month, year to year. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. Now, this latest news may bring back trauma for survivors. If you or someone you know needs help, there is a number to call 24 hours a day. The National Residential School Survivor Hotline is 1-866-925-4419. Taking a look now at the latest COVID-19 numbers for B.C. and an encouraging trend continues. We have 33 new cases. 639 of those are considered active. There are or there is no change in hospitalizations with 66 patients, 14 of them in the ICU. And thankfully, again today, no new deaths to report. There, there are growing calls tonight for mandatory COVID-19 vaccinations for most health care workers in B.C. That's after the province's Human Rights Commissioner weighed in on one of the most contentious issues of the pandemic recovery. Ted Chernecki reports. BC's Human Rights Commissioner has weighed in on the growing debate about whether one should have to prove a full vaccination before being allowed in certain workplaces. The short answer, yes. But only after less intrusive means have been exhausted and only in those situations where there is a risk involved and that um, a person's risk of exposure to COVID-19 has to be considered as well as the person's rights of freedom around whether or not to be vaccinated. The Commissioner's guidance policy strikes a balance between the rights of the individual and those of the population as a whole. No one's safety should be put at risk because of other people's personal choices not to receive a vaccine, and no one should experience harassment or unjustified discrimination when there are effective alternatives to vaccination status policies. Healthcare seems to be one of those workplaces where a full vaccination requirement will come with the job. 
it's not unreasonable that there will be some work environments where the expectation is that people are vaccinated. And I think uh, healthcare settings are one of those settings. Long-term care homes, for example, where 95% of elderly, fragile and still vulnerable residents are fully vaccinated, but they are being cared for by workers who are not, even today. In some care homes, the uptake is as low as 60 or 70%, and that's simply not acceptable. New regulations announced by the province say those not fully vaccinated and who want to continue to work in long-term care homes. They will have to continue to wear masks and goggles and other protective uh, equipment, plus undergo a rapid test uh, three times a week if they're working full-time. The commissioner's guidelines suggest it's far less obvious for other jobs and cautions any requirement of proof of vaccination has to be weighed against an individual's right to not vaccinate. And whatever policy put in place has to be flexible as pandemic conditions change. Ted Chernaki, Global News. And let's bring in Keith Baldry now to continue on the topic of vaccines. couple of points, uh, Keith. First off, we reached that 80% threshold of mm-hmm. people 18 plus in B.C. to get their yep. first dose. That's good. And our health minister was also asked today about AstraZeneca going yes. to waste here. What was his response to that? Yeah, poor old AstraZeneca, our orphan vaccine, really not administering, administering many doses a day, about 300, 400 a day. We were at 6,000 a day, but basically people have stopped getting that vaccine as a second dose for the most part. Uh, there was a batch that arrived some time ago that did have an early expiry date. Today, uh, Minister Dick saying some of those doses did expire, relatively few of them. We've got about 63,000 doses remaining uh, at 500 a day. We are going to be in a position of having to get rid of those doses before they expire at the end of August if people just simply aren't using them. Today, Minister Dick saying those will be sent to other jurisdictions if need be. I think it's a relatively small amount where um, most of the AstraZeneca we have on hand now doesn't expire until August and it would be our absolute expectation uh, that that uh, that that, uh, AstraZeneca, that vaccine, if it's not to be used here, be returned and be provided in other jurisdictions where it can. Variants of concern, Keith, especially the Mm -hmm. Delta variant still causing major setbacks in parts of the world. Uh, What's the situation regarding variants here? Very good. So BC, another big win for BC so far in the fight against COVID-19. The variants of concern, basically every case that comes in now is a variant of concern. Here's the latest statistics for the week ending in July 3rd, about 362 uh, cases examined. 55% of those are of the gamma variety. That was originally uh, P1, originally discovered in Brazil. Second most now is alpha. That has been the dominant variant of concern for so long. And now look at delta. It's actually down three percentage points from the week before. So basically, you can tie this to our high vaccination rate. Delta is really surging in the United States, particularly in states that don't have high vaccination rates. Places like Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana, Nevada and Utah have vaccination rates of below 50 percent. That's where Delta is taking off. So this is great news for B.C. With no evidence that Delta is taking off. It's the most infectious one of all, the most dangerous one of all. And so far, so good in terms of our experience with it. Well, let's hope it stays that way. Keith, thanks very much. And here's another sign the end of the pandemic is near. Vancouver Coastal Health is demobilizing the alternate care site set up at the Vancouver Convention Centre. That site was established in April of 2020 as one of several throughout the province to ensure B.C. had enough capacity in hospitals if there was a flood of COVID patients needing urgent care. 
The site had 271 beds, and while it was never activated, Vancouver Coastal continuously assessed and revised operational plans to make sure the site could adapt to the shifting needs of the healthcare system during the pandemic. The teardown should be complete by July 16th. However, plans have been put in place to support a site remobilization if it is needed. Vancouver's flip-flop on football's biggest event. At one time, BC shrugged off the chance to co-host some World Cup soccer games in 2026. But there are a lot of reasons the province would support it now. Why BC Plays could welcome the world next on the News Hour. It's all about the wow factor at every turn. A Kelowna mansion hits the market in a no-reserve auction. What makes this property a potential bargain later on the news hour? And no slowing down for this grouse grind enthusiast who's getting close to 90. His secret to longevity coming up later. Right now, though, the city of Vancouver is suddenly back in the running to be a host city for one of the biggest sporting events in the world. Richard Zussman tells us why the government that turned down the Men's World Cup three years ago is now taking another look. First for the 2010 Winter Olympics, then again for the 2015 FIFA Women's World Cup. Now Vancouver poised to once again welcome fans from around the world. I have had some preliminary discussions with the um, FIFA representatives here in Canada. Three years after saying game over to FIFA, the BC government now willing to play. Clearing the way for BC Place as a stadium for the 2026 Men's World Cup. Our tourism sector has been buffeted perhaps more than any other sector over the past uh, 16 months. And the prospect of inviting the world to Vancouver in 2026 all of a sudden takes on a whole do new meaning. Canada, the U.S., Mexico were chosen as joint hosts for one of the world's most high-profile sporting events. Canada will host 10 games. Montreal dropped out as a potential bid city, leaving just Toronto and Edmonton. B.C. still has concerns. The security costs will be left to the province. B.C. Place will be required to get not just one, but two natural grass fields. The original plan meant B.C. Place couldn't be used for two months around the games, and FIFA could reopen the contract at any time. We've made it abundantly clear that uh, if the proposal is as rich as that that was proposed back in 2018, we wouldn't be interested. But I think that uh, we are, again, FIFA's in a different place, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia is in a different place. Uh, we're prepared to entertain those discussions and see where we go. Even with the negatives, experts say even a few games would be a net positive, not just for the city, but the entire province. Vancouver has become Canada's number one special events hub. Uh, more than Toronto, more than Edmonton. The decision on cities is expected in 2022, but behind the scenes, FIFA has been very clear. BC Place is one of its favorites. Let's go, Canada! Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. It would. Up next, pulling the plug on patios. The time it takes to drive to the other end and come back and around again, it's just ridiculous. White Rock reverses direction on its one-way lane. What local businesses say about it? Also tonight, why TransLink is shutting down one of Vancouver's busiest SkyTrain stations for two years. Good evening. Final clearing stages here in Delta of an earlier crash. Southbound on Highway 99, just south of Ladner Trunk Road in the right lane. From home to car insurance, BCAA's local experts are here for all your insurance needs. Visit BCAA.com.
I'm sure she was in Global One. High above a crash in Delta. The popular street patios outside many of the restaurants along the White Rock Strip are going away after City Council voted to end the program and reopen Marine Drive to two-way traffic. Council says the decision represents the will of business owners, but as Grace Key reports, they aren't pleasing everybody. Opening up patios during the pandemic was supposed to offer restaurants some support, but in White Rock, businesses along Marine Drive seem to be split. Well, it really decreased our business for sure, and I believe why would be because getting access to East, East Beach right now is very difficult for people and time-consuming. Since June 7, only one lane of traffic was open along sections of Marine Drive to allow for more patio space, but some businesses say that affected traffic, and at Moby Dick, takeout went down 50%. And it just started right after this all went in. So, um, yeah, when COVID first hit, our takeout was insanely busy. I mean, we were doing great for just takeout. While business went down for some, others did well. Charlie Don't Surf along West Beach made a significant investment bringing in six tables and hiring 10 extra staff. A lot of the people that this benefited are now in the dark again. I've had two staff call me today saying, hey, what are the hour cutbacks going to look like? Do I need to go back on EI? And we're trying to figure out if we're going to be writing ROEs again. All in favor, please show or say aye. City Council voted to return Marine Drive to two-way traffic. Some businesses expected to be able to keep their patios until the end of September. At the end of May, Council amended the closure to end once restaurants could return to full capacity. That happened July 1st. The truth is some of them did exceedingly well and and. and that's a benefit to them and to the city, um, but it, there had to be the balance there. So uh, the ones that did well, you know, that's great, but uh, there were others that believed that, you know, wasn't working for them. Two-way traffic could reopen as early as August 7th, after the long weekend. Grace Key, Global News. Well, it is perfect patio weather now that things have cooled down a bit, but BC's extreme heat wave, that heat dome, garnered worldwide attention, especially from climatologists. Our senior meteorologist, Christy Gordon, joins us now with more on how they tried to make sense of these unprecedented record-breaking conditions. Christy? Yeah, so, so climatologists were watching as these all-time records were broken day after day. And one group in particular, consisting of 27 climatologists from around the world, dove into the data to produce a scientific report called an extreme value analysis, analyzing the chance that this type of event would occur pre-industrial revolution in the current climate and beyond. Now, the report states the occurrence of an extreme heat wave like the one we observed was virtually impossible without human-caused climate change or pre-industrial revolution. Even in the current climate, with a global mean temperature increase of 1.2 degrees, the chance of this type of heat wave occurring is incredibly rare, estimated to be a 1 in 1,000 year event. But by 2040, if carbon emissions continue as they are and global mean temperature increases to 2 degrees, we could be experiencing these heat waves once every 5 to 10 years. It's been a good warning shot for us. Um, we got this this sneak preview of, of what's going to happen later in the century, and um, I know I have a lot of work to do. And what's very interesting and scary is that the data was uh, from this heat wave, what's unlike uh, climatologists have ever seen. Uh, it gives a sense that 2021's weather seems to be drawing from a different set of conditions, almost like our climate has reached a new level of change. 
typically you see high temperatures that kind of line up with previous record highs in a way that um, makes intuitive sense and kind of fits with the, the techniques that we use. And we found with this um, this approach that it the, the new observation wasn't lining up at all. It was it was kind of up in a in a new world. If you want more information on this scientific report, including reasons why climatologists feel it's so important to uh, produce these reports so quickly after an event, I've written an article on our website, and all you have to do is search heatwave. All right, globalnews.ca slash BC. Thank you very much, Christy. All right, we'll check in later for the weather forecast. And up next, a promise to help paramedics and other first responders. The health minister has heard their cries about an overstressed system. What he plans to do about it next. And allegations of sexual harassment and racism at the Cloverdale Rodeo and Exhibition Association. What more than a dozen employees say about the man who was once in charge. Once again, over the Massey Tunnel, where we're still dealing with a stall northbound just before the south end, partially on the right shoulder. Through new charitable partnership between Kermac Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermac Collision and Autoglass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. I'm Trishy was sitting Global One, high above the stall before the Massey Tunnel. One of the busiest stations on the SkyTrain line will be closed starting early next year for a major overhaul. The Burrard SkyTrain station was originally built in 1985 and hasn't had any major upgrades in the 30, 36 years since then. The two-year reno project will see the number of elevators and escalators double. The Burrard Street entrance will be relocated and the station's electrical and mechanical will also be modernized. 21 former workers and volunteers have filed a human rights complaint saying they experienced discrimination by the former general manager of the Cloverdale Rodeo. The complaint was filed on behalf of nearly two dozen rodeo workers and volunteers. They're alleging former rodeo GM Mike McSorley created a toxic work environment by making sexist and racist comments and acting in a threatening manner towards women and South Asian people. The complaint also alleges the Cloverdale Rodeo Association was made aware of that conduct and took no steps to address it. McSorley resigned from his position as GM of the rodeo back in March. When contacted by Global News, McSorley denied sexually harassing anyone, but admitted he may have made some, quote, bad jokes. Two men are in hospital with serious injuries after what police describe as a gruesome sword attack in a Vancouver neighborhood. Police responded to the area of Spruce and 12th Monday evening after calls about a violent confrontation. A 29-year-old suspect was found bleeding outside from what are believed to be self-inflicted injuries. A 59-year-old man was also taken to hospital with serious injuries. Witnesses say they saw a man running down the street with a samurai-style sword. He jumped through the window when the cops got there, um, went running at this car with the samurai sword, jumped on top of the hood of the car and was smashing the window. And that's when the cops started beanbagging him. They did about six or seven or eight of them. And then they couldn't take him down. At this point, we're trying to understand exactly what did happen. The suspect is very injured. We've been unable to interview him or debrief him. He's at hospital with very serious and life-threatening injuries. The victim in this case also has very serious injuries as well. We believe he's going to pull through and will survive. 
The suspect and the victim were known to each other, but police won't say how. An officer suffered minor injuries during the pursuit, and the Independent Investigations Office has been notified. The B.C. government is promising a major announcement tomorrow of measures to improve the province's beleaguered ambulance and emergency dispatch service. That after at least 719 people died during the recent extreme heat wave, three times what would be normal for that period. But as Aaron MacArthur reports, the head of the B.C. paramedics union says the changes must address the needs of his membership. Sick injured, sometimes dying. Too often in the last month, people forced to wait for help to arrive, if at all. There's points where my grandmother was crying and she was like, are they even going to come? Overworked and understaffed paramedics, unable to respond to an unprecedented number of calls. We're hearing about uh, situations all over where uh, the outcomes of patients have been delayed uh, and that's not uh, at all what we're about as a service. For weeks, the health minister and emergency health services have been promising solutions to the staffing shortages. Hundreds of new positions for full-time paramedics, changes to on-call pay in rural regions. But all the announced measures aimed at longer-term fixes. Paramedics and the public want to know what help is on the way right now. The government plans to address that issue Wednesday. Two things that I expect from BC Emergency Health Services. One, when people need an ambulance and call 911, an ambulance should get there. And two, that we should be an outstanding employer. The union representing paramedics has been pushing hard for immediate help on the front lines. The issue's well known and union leadership suggesting dozens of improvements that could have immediate results. In the next week, two weeks, and over the summer month, to get us through our immediate crisis that we're facing with short staffing, uh, our dispatchers need the address to address the immediate need to get ambulances to people in their time of need. Without short-term remedies, paramedics say more people will go wanting for care and more paramedics will burn out. Structural changes to address long-term service shortfalls will take time. Time patients at this point simply don't have. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. The NDP government has unveiled a major expansion of the already promised addition to Richmond Hospital. Premier John Horgan and Health Minister Adrian Dix announcing or sorry, $860 million will now be spent on expanding the hospital. It'll add 113 new beds, bringing the total to 353. The increased funding will also create a new nine-floor patient care tower, an expanded emergency department, and more operating rooms. Oftentimes in these, uh, in these sorts of situations, people want immediate success. They want to move quickly. And I normally would agree with that. But in this instance, taking another year to get it right means that we have a better facility coming forward. The government says the new tower will be earthquake safe, constructed above the floodplain, and be 100% carbon neutral. It's scheduled to be complete in 2029. Coming up, still grinding at 87. Ready to go. Why you might have a hard time keeping up with a man who doesn't know the meaning of quit. But first, the $6.5 million Kelowna mansion that could sell for a lot less than that. 
Residents living near the Becker Lake wildfire just east of Vernon are breathing a sigh of relief as crews get the upper hand on that fire. Last night, the regional district of North Okanagan and the district of Coldstream rescinded evacuation alerts in the area. The wildfire, which was first discovered on Saturday, is 35 hectares and classified as being held. That means it's not expected to spread beyond its existing boundaries. There was no new growth of the fire on Monday, according to the BC Wildfire Service. 41 firefighters, two helicopters and skimmers are involved in the firefight. And the Thomas Creek wildfire burning east of Skaha Lake in the South Okanagan has grown to 900 hectares, or about 9 square kilometers. An evacuation order was lifted late Monday afternoon, but an alert is still in place. Thankfully, the wildfire is burning southeast, away from more populated areas. Regional district officials say no structures have been lost and there is no imminent threat to homes. Boaters are reminded to stay off Skaha Lake to allow skimmers and helicopters to safely scoop water while conducting firefighting operations. All right, let's bring in Christy Gordon once again with a look at our forecast. Uh, uh, cooling off a little bit down here on the south coast, Christy, but uh, still pretty warm some parts in the interior. Yes, I mean, we're lucky that we have this bit of a breeze, although tomorrow is going to be another hot one, but the breeze certainly helps. Interior regions still under a heat warning, though. Here's a look at the regions. Caribou, Chilcotin, Fraser Canyon, as well as South Okanagan and the, into the West Kootenai region. Uh, the highs today, tremendous at 39 degrees, certainly not the unprecedented conditions we did have, but uh, we're still definitely getting up there, especially with a bit of humidity. It feels closer to 40. We have significant smoke all across the region, especially in Kamloops, wide spread there. Tomorrow afternoon, we're going to see the winds pick up a bit with gusts 30 to 40 kilometers an hour, generally coming out of the south, but quite variable depending on the region. But it's those gusts, of course, that are the big concern for spreading the fire. Now, how did we jump there? Sorry, everyone. That was magic. All right. So let's move on to your forecast here. Uh, so forecast looking at uh, mostly dry conditions across the province again tomorrow. We still have no significant rain in the forecast as far as we can see. Uh, there is a few showers expected in through the far north and southeastern corner, but that comes with a risk of thunderstorms. And for our, our region, we are going to see a bit of a change on Thursday with a bit more cloud cover, and that will drop the temperatures not only Thursday, but into Friday as well. Slight chance of showers, but as as I mentioned, no significant rain. A sprinkle might be nice, let's be honest. Now, here's your central windows weather window for today. It's from Kamloops. Thank you to Catherine for that, showing the smoky skies in the background there and a nice gorgeous shot of a horse. Mm -hmm. A little hazy, no doubt about it. Okay, thanks very much, Christy. Well, like many areas of the province right now, the Kelowna real estate market is red hot, especially when it comes to the luxury market. In fact, one Kelowna homeowner is so confident he's selling his multi-million dollar home at auction with no reserve. Global's Travis Lowe has the lowdown. This is Hobson Road in Kelowna, a secluded enclave of established wealth with large homes on generous lots. It's one of the city's most desirable locations, and now one of its premier properties is up for grabs. This is Avante on Hobson, arguably one of the finest homes in all the Okanagan. And yours truly was all set to argue that actually, that is until I got the VIP tour of the palatial estate, currently listed for $6.49 million. Sure, the glitzy video is nice, but you really need to experience a place like this in person to get a sense of it. 
and what a place Avante is. The Mediterranean-inspired mansion has 22-foot cathedral ceilings. Seven bedrooms plus nine bathrooms are spread out over 10,000 square feet. Throw in a pool plus a five-car garage and this custom-designed kitchen, and the realtor says you've got Okanagan extravagance. This home is built for entertaining, and really it's all about the wow factor at every turn. Avanti on Hobson, one of the nicest homes on the block, is about to go up on the block. The auction block, that is. It's a tactic that's becoming increasingly popular amongst luxury home sellers. We've been at it at 10 years, and uh, we've noticed a significant uptick um, in our business. And the hot market, I think, has something to do with it. That hot market has the homeowners putting Avante on Hobson up for auction with Lambert in an open bidding process with no reserve bids, despite the fact that the home has been on the traditional real estate market for almost a year. It's an exciting thing for the buyers as well, because there is an opportunity to get a deal on a, on a fantastic property like Avante. The auction goes from August 16th through to the 19th. I'll be returning some empties and thinking about registering a bid. For the lowdown, Travis Lowe, Global News, Kelowna. I would get lost in there. Oh, you but know I'd what? be okay so, with that. <laughs> just tell yourself it's too much vacuuming. Yep. And dusting. Not, not worry about it. Dusting. Totally. No, thank you. Am I right? Yeah. There would be rooms that you wouldn't visit for years. Yeah. I didn't know there was a bathroom here. I didn't know there was a third floor. All these sorts of things. Uh, Richmond's Evan Dumphy is feeling as good as ever as he heads to the Olympics. Um, and then racing, obviously, I've set three national records the last month and a half. Dumphy is a race walker, and he finished in that terrible position of fourth at the last Olympics. So his motivation is even higher this time. All right, look forward to that. And the inspirational story of a man who just can't get enough of the grouse grind. Waiting on a name, Squire. I know. We'll get one tomorrow morning, apparently. It was supposed to happen last Friday, but Abbotsford's new American Hockey League team, the one the Canucks own, will reveal its name and logo and colors tomorrow. It's a bit late in the game, considering the next hockey season really isn't all that far away, but the anticipation... For this team is growing. In fact, there is a list of over 3,000 people who want season tickets. Because this is the Canucks farm team, interest is way higher than when they had the Abbotsford Heat, which of course was Calgary's farm team. And the only time that team seemed to get a crowd was when the Canucks minor leaguers came to town to play against them. In 2012, the Minnesota Wild grabbed all the headlines by signing defenseman Ryan Suter and forward Zach Parise as free agents. They gave them both 13-year contracts worth around $7.5 million per year. Well, today, Minnesota bought out both of the contracts, saving some money and making them free agents. The Wild only missed the postseason once with these two, but they never got beyond the second round. And after 15 seasons with Nashville, goaltender Pekka Rinne is retiring at the age of 38. He won the Vesna as the NHL's top goalie in 2018, led Nashville to the 2017 Stanley Cup Final. And as you can see here, he also scored a goal. Only one of 12 goaltenders to ever score in the NHL. Well, we showed you the Abbotsford Center just a moment ago. That is the site of tomorrow night's game between the Fraser Valley Bandits and the Guelph Nighthawks. The difference? 
this game will allow fans in the building and people want to be there. They've sold around 1,600 tickets already, which is pretty much all the seats they initially offered. They could go as high as 2,000 with walk-ups. This will be the biggest crowd, I believe, for a BC-based sporting event since the Canucks and Islanders played March 10th of last year. Major League Baseball All-Star Game, lots of Blue Jays. Guerrero, Semien, Teoscar Hernandez, Bo Bichette. And Marcus Semien drives in the first run. Doesn't get the ball out of the infield, but Aaron Judge scores, and he's safe at first, and the American League's up 1-0. Then Vladimir Guerrero second at bat, and that is 468 feet from where he was swinging the lumber. And it's 4-0 now for the American League in the fifth. Well, some row their way to the Olympics, some jump their way there, some lift, throw, shoot, hurdle, ride horses. Some run fast and some walk fast. And Canada's best at walking fast is Richmond's Evan Dumphy, who is going to his second Olympic Games. What's crazy to think about is my last 50K race was uh, in you know, September of 2019. I've put in over 10,000 kilometers of training since that last 50K. Uh, right now it's, it's 150 to 180 kilometers a week you know, out here on the streets of Richmond. And uh, it's, it's, I can't think of a better backdrop to do those kilometers. The distance from Vancouver to Tokyo is 7,551 kilometers. Evan Dunphy's race walked the equivalent of that and then some preparing for his second Olympic Games. And judging by how well his training's gone, Dunphy is more than hitting his stride prior to leaving for Tokyo next week. When I look at all of my training PBs, every single one of them has come from the last three, four months. Um, and then racing, obviously, I've set three national records the last month and a half. And just everything is giving that indication that we're exactly where we want to be. Where Evan wants to be is once again at the front of the 50K race pack contending for an Olympic medal. It's where he was at the Rio Olympics when he crossed the finish line fourth, was then awarded the bronze medal due to the disqualification of another competitor, only to subsequently have the medal taken away on appeal. It was a defining moment of his career, not just in the class he showed giving up the medal, but also how it reshaped his motivation to be the best he can be. I measure my success by how hard I push and pursue those goals and how far I get along the way. So it's not, did I get there in the end? It's look how far I came from where I started. And that's how I measure my success. So on that start line in Sapporo, if I can 50 kilometers of, of laying everything I have, every ounce I have in me and cross that finish line knowing I had nothing left, whether it's first, thir third, fourth, or somewhere in the middle of the pack, if I do that, I'm gonna leave that, leave that race course feeling successful. At 30 years old and once again a serious medal threat, Evan's not ruling out racing in another Olympics. The Richmond resident is also considering a political career at the municipal level. And if anyone has their foot on the pulse of the city, it's Dunphy, as he's raced his way around 60% of Richmond streets training over the years. You know, certainly I want to play a role in, in what the next hundred years for this city looks like because this city's given me so much and so many opportunities and you know, I just want to play a role in, in what that looks like. Jay Janower, Global Sports. Did you say you raced him down the hallway once? I lost. You lost? <laughs> you should have run. Go figure. All right, thanks, Squire. Some of us have done the grouse grind a few times. Some of us have not done it at all. Up next, the octogenarian gross grinder putting all of us to shame. <laughs> well, the grouse grind really is nature's stairmaster, and there's a great sense of accomplishment when you finish. You would know. <laughs> One day I will. 
And we are about to introduce you to a man who has summited the grind almost 200 times in the last few years alone, even as he approaches the age of 90. Jay Durant has his inspiring story. Ready to go? This is a timer. To your timer? Uh, yeah. He's off again. Gion Singh Coatley making the climb one more time. It's hard to give an updated number because sometimes he does this several times a week. Dozens of climbs already this year. It's crazy. What's the secret? This is in Punjabi. What does that mean? It means spiritually enlightened people never grow old. Gyan is 87. Nobody he meets on the gross grind ever guesses anywhere close to the right age. They start from about uh, 55, 60, 70, up to 70 they stop. His friends on Facebook have followed his journey, not just on the gross grind, but also his outdoor winter adventures. Flying, flying in the high, very high in the sky. He can get down a mountain pretty quickly, too. At 87, it's unbelievable. You know, it's a, he's a good source uh, of encouragement. I did see him go up the trail, and I was like, oh my gosh, he's going way faster than me. And I was like really shocked. How are you feeling? Very nice. <laughs> Mr. Coatley has become very popular, posing for many pictures during his adventures. And he's always giving little pep talks to others out on the trail. Yeah, he's very, very funny, very encouraging. Uh... Hello, 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 hello. We are going back. Why are you going back? You don't see. I am at least more than double the age of yours. <sighs> the final push to the top, and Guillaume will be happy with this one. Another victory. <laughs> it's encouraging, it's inspiring, and um, I hope, you know, every one of us will be like him one day. One hour and 44 minutes, his best time of the year, at least for now. Jay Durant, Global News. And if, and if you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC, email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. Love is line, the spiritually enlightened never grow old. And we hope you don't either. Thanks for watching. Good night, all.